Jesus is always interested in knowing, in you knowing the truth. Jesus himself not only knows the truth, he says that he is the truth. And he wants you to know him. And it dawned on me years ago that if I likened the truth to a narrow path, and Jesus said that there was a narrow path that led on to life and salvation. On that narrow path of truth, there's a ditch on either side of the road. The passage we're going to look at today is truth. Everything I'm going to read to you is absolutely and exactly true. My explanation of it is only my explanation of it. It may vary apart from what God intended for you to know in the, as the truth. I don't think so. I've done my best. But the Word itself is truth. My explanation from it may come exactly right or close or vary from what God wants you to know, but there is a fundamental truth in the passage of Scripture I'm going to try to share with you today and explain to you, and it's the love of God. And whenever Christians gather and talk about the love of God, that is a truth, that is a path that God wants you to know and walk down, but just like every truth, there's a ditch on either side. One ditch is that the love of God is so familiar to you. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, and the fact that God loves you is so familiar that now it's mundane and almost expected, and you kind of have a ho-hum response to the idea that God loves you. That would be sad, but not unexpected. The first Bible verse most of us have learned starts like this, for God so God so loved the world. When I was a little boy and I was starting to understand who Jesus was, my mom took that passage, opened it up, sat me down on the bed beside her and showed me to put my name where it said the world so that I could understand what God's love meant to me. So I read it like this, for God so loved Bruce. Wow, that made the lights come on. So all of my adult life, most of my life, I have known that God loved me. And that tempts me into the ditch on the left side of truth, which says, okay, God loves me. I get that. I can't believe I came to church to hear this. Okay? The other ditch on the other side of the road is probably not as familiar to everyone in the room, but it sounds like this. God may love others the way that way, but He cannot possibly love me that way. Each of you will be tempted toward one ditch or the other. You may oscillate between the two. I sometimes, when I'm trying to understand and follow God's truth, I jump from one ditch to the other. I want us to ask God, and I'm going to do my human best with His divine help and power, or then there's no point of us even listening to what I have to say that you will understand the depth, the breadth, the height, the amazing love of God that He has for you. The passage I have for you today was written by the last living apostle. We can't be entirely sure when John wrote this, but we understand from putting his life together that he was probably an old man and dearly loved and respected because he was the last living apostle of those who had been closest to Jesus 
John was the one, we're told, who, the disciple whom Jesus loved. No one had a closer friendship with Jesus on earth than John. And he alone was the only one who was not murdered for following Jesus. He suffered greatly for him, though. And by the time he wrote this letter, a man who had once asked Jesus' permission to call fire down upon his opponents is now known as the love apostle. And this first letter of his, he wrote three in addition to his gospel that I just read you from. This whole letter just pulses with John's love for the people who were reading it and the depth of his desire for him to understand just how real Jesus is. As you come to the Christmas story and we see basically a kid's Christmas pageant in that little video. Wasn't that the cutest little thing you've ever seen? Not entirely sure of the biblical accuracy of all points of that depiction. <laughs> but the baby Jesus that grew up into the man Jesus, he was just as real, just as human, just as helpless as the little baby in the video. Looked to me like that little baby was placed in a large dog's bowl, not a trough. Jesus himself, the man who John says, explained it in the passage I just read to you, he came and dwelt among us, literally, he came and tabernacled among us. He set up his tent. As far as his humanity was concerned, he was as much at fragile and at risk as the rest of us. And he dwelt among us, he set up his tent among us, he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. John is concerned in all of his writings when he writes to Christians and to skeptics that they know just how real Jesus was. That's why in his first letter, before we come to our passage, he writes 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he's talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Who are you talking about, John? What is this? Here it is. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. And here's the reason we're telling you about Jesus so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. When John starts writing this letter, he says, I am, to, I am here to tell you about that which was from the beginning. In other words, I'm going to tell you about a person who is eternal and uncreated. That can only be one person. And right there, if you have merely an earthly perspective and you base your evaluation of the Bible on what you've experienced in ordinary life, your mind kind of stops and you begin to question how could such a thing be. That's why an eyewitness and a personal friend says, I'm telling you about what I've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. John is very simple and very repetitive with his language. Let's study the Bible a little bit. In other words, this is where I stop talking a little bit, and you look at the Bible, and you figure something out with me. Is that a fair deal? Yeah. There's always a mixed response to these invitations. 
How many different ways does John tell you that Jesus was real, was actually human? Look through those verses. What are the phrases that indicate the reality of Jesus? Jesus, he says, was from the beginning, but we what? We heard him. Not only that, we've what? Seen him with our eyes. Now, that is redundant, isn't it? What else can you see with? John a bad writer? No. He's being emphatic. He's saying, I was really there. These old eyes who once squinted across the lake of Galilee in search of fish, they saw him. What else? We've touched him with our hands. We put hands on him. Pastor Jim has joked for years, and we've tried to imagine what the campfires would have been like with Jesus and these commercial fishermen. Think they horsed around? Serious question. Do you think there was joking and laughter around that fire? Yes. Maybe next year I'll be able to show you the humor of Jesus. Jesus is a funny man. Could be quite sarcastic. Now, that's not sanctioned for your sarcasm, which, like mine, is rooted in malice, but <laughs> he was sarcastic to make a point. He was always truthful and loving and holy and good and merciful, but he was quite funny and could be quite sarcastic. And what John's telling you is we heard him ourselves. Not only that, we got close enough to see him with our own eyes. We weren't told about Jesus. We were there. We were so close, in fact, that we touched him with our hands. Again, more redundancy. We put our hands around him. We felt the bone in his shoulders. We felt the muscles rippling through his back as he worked alongside us. Later, John will see him bleed and suffer, and thirst, and die. He's saying this is all actually real. It's true. That life, the word of life, was made manifest, and we have seen it, and now we are testifying to it and proclaiming to you the eternal life. That life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. How many more times can he say this? My invitation to you, you're reading the Bible, slow down. God isn't a bad writer. He didn't, he didn't use the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit did not use men poorly to write down what He wanted us to know. All of this repetition is so that you can hear from a real human person who is now bent with age and sunburned and tired from his life's work, first as a fisherman, and then what was much more difficult, a, the life of a disciple of Jesus in the middle of persecution to say He was really there. And the reason we're telling you about a real person is this, so that you may have fellowship with us so that we can have life together, so that we can live heart to heart. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. What a thought. We are happiest. Our joy is full when we tell you about the one we love, Jesus. If we would simply look at it from that perspective, that Christian witnessing and evangelism is one person telling somebody else about Jesus, maybe it would help get us get over ourselves and not feel so much pressure. I know this, when you really love somebody, you can't stop talking about them. Have you noticed? My, pe my 
people close around me who have to, God help them, work with me day to day, I'm quite sure they're tired of hearing about my kids. Why do I talk about my kids? I love them. Can't stop. Same thing with my wife. Man, when Sharice and I first started dating, I let it be known all over my college campus that she was dating me. Nobody could believe it. <laughs> and I would always say, well, the, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And somebody said, so you had somebody praying for you then? I go, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yes, my mother and father. That's the heart of this paragraph. That's the heart of John's epistle. He knew Jesus as a real person who had always been a person, an eternal person, who did the amazing thing of stepping in, stepping across eternity into the finite world that he had made, and he became an actual human part of it. So the baby Jesus who was in the manger wasn't pretending to be a baby. He really was. He needed the shelter of his mother and father. He needed care and feeding and protection, and he even needed changing to prosper and to grow up into the man who then declared himself with pure, perfect self-knowledge to not be just another baby, but to be the very Son of God who would call fishermen to follow him. And John says, now our joy is complete. We want our joy to be filled up when you join in fellowship with us because we have an actual living, breathing fellowship relationship with God and His Son Jesus who stepped into the world He made. That's the spirit of the epistle of John. And John's got his hands full, and you need to understand he's writing very specifically about things that were happening in his day. See, the story of the birth of Jesus, that God becomes a man, is not only hard to believe in our time, it was always hard to believe. It was hard to believe for the first people who heard it. One of the first contradictions that came against Christianity was something called Gnosticism that you may never have heard of, but it is shot through our culture. Gnosticism basically has this idea. What is fleshly is fallen and evil, but the spirit is pure. And if that be the case, then Jesus couldn't have had a human body. He was either pretending to have a human body or the divine was with him for a time and abandoned him at his crucifixion. But for the true, pure, actual Son of God to live in human flesh always, impossible, didn't happen. Now, the Gnostics who had this idea, and that's what John is responding to here, that's why he's saying, we really saw him, we really heard him, we really put our hands on him. He was a real man all the way through. The Gnostics had basically two variations, and you'll do a little cultural analysis with me now. One school of Gnosticism said, since the body is fallen and evil, we must treat it very harshly with our diet and with our rituals to purify it. That was one response to Gnosticism. The other one said this, the spirit is always and only pure. The flesh is fallen, but the spirit is pure. So do whatever you want with your body. It's all good. The spirit is pure. Which of those two schools do you think was more popular? the Las Vegas option, right? Do whatever you want. 
And that core philosophical idea is shot through so-called Western spirituality 2,000 years later. People do reprehensible, horrible, shameful things that wound their own conscience with their bodies, but then they say, but I'm spiritual. I have a connection with God, and no one can take that away from me. I've heard that from people who are admittedly tremendously bad criminals. Why is that? Gnosticism. John says, for you first century readers, the people reading this letter, you need to know on the front side, the testimony I'm about to give you about Jesus is real and legitimate. I was an eyewitness. I heard him. I even touched him. And now I want you to tell you about him and what a difference his appearing in the world made to you. And what he keeps coming back to is the difference that the love of God makes for the people that Jesus came for. You see, what John's going to tell us is that the love of God changes everything. Look with me now to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now John is talking about the love of God. Now you're going to be tempted into one of those two ditches. I know he loves me that way. I'm over it. I can't believe you're telling me this again. This is so familiar, I'm no longer amazed by it. Or perhaps you're one of those who has worn your body out doing things that your conscience tells you you shouldn't, and you think you're beyond hope and beyond redemption, and that God may love other people, nice people, shiny people, church-going people like that, but He could certainly never love you. The truth is, God's love is like this and appears to everyone in the person of Jesus and then invites people to stop loving themselves and to love Him instead. Look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He, Jesus, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. What does God's love change? Everything. First of all, the most amazing thing, the most foundational thing I could tell you is that the love of God appearing in the person of Jesus Christ changes who we are. 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children of God. There's nothing closer than that. Another Bible translation accurately explains it this way. Look what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called His own children. See, children, that's, that's much closer than people who were merely rescued. Jesus is correctly called, calls Himself the Savior, but He's much more than that. There are many rescuers in the world. I love to work alongside, and I respect deeply the work that first responders do, the rescuers that go to the scene of trouble when everybody else just wants to get away from it and wants to turn away. But if you're in a bad car accident and you're knocked unconscious, and maybe your car is dripping a little gasoline and about to catch fire, and the fireman comes and 
they pull you away to safety. And as you sit on the curb and come to and catch your breath and look around and see the blood dripping and your clothes torn and the wreckage of your former car just as it starts catching fire, that firefighter, as heroic as he is, is going to make sure that you're okay and make sure that you have people who are actually in your family or who love you who are going to come and support you. He's not going to take you home and adopt you. He's only a first responder. Jesus is more than a rescuer. He is more than a savior. Who is, he is a savior for the express purpose, John says, of bringing those he rescues not only to safety but into the very family of God. That's why he said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. The purpose of the love of God was not merely to rescue people and to make them safe. He had much more in mind than that. He had in mind to bring us into his own family. And I searched for a while for an image to try to convey the depth of that love and the best earthly thing I can imagine it's not perfect, but it's a good start that conveys what a difference that makes is a story that Sharice and I learned while we were serving in Mexico. I didn't have, frankly, much to do with it aside from a few visits, but my wife worked very closely with an orphanage in Chihuahua, Mexico that worked with the people, with the children who were so destitute and so poor, even Mexico's very extensive social services system had let them go. It was started by a Christian pastor who had the equivalent of about 50 American cents in his pocket, but he met several street kids. And hearing that they had lived on the street for a very long time, and that every day was a gamble for survival, and they were being horribly mistreated and on the edge of starvation, not knowing what else to do, he took them home to his wife and doubled the size of his family in one moment, and the orphanage really started from him taking a few kids home. From that came an orphanage that lived really on faith alone, an orphanage so poor that they counted the tortillas to make sure that every child had one per meal. Now, I grew up in Mexico. My, youngest son, my younger son's a Mexican citizen, actually. He's a dual citizen, so I, I'm about as close to Mexico as a gringo can be, okay? If you know anything about Mexico and Mexicans and Mexican food, tortillas are not something you count. You just kind of stack them up on the table. Nobody's counting. They sell it by the kilo, for goodness sakes, 2.2 pounds. This orphanage was so poor that they literally counted the flour tortillas as they made them in the morning to make sure that every child could have one per meal. The poorest kids in that orphanage, even beyond the, what you and I would consider the normal Mexican kids that had somehow fallen out of favor with their family, were those indigenous children that had been rescued somehow from the local Tarahumara tribe in Mexico. The Tarahumara are the indigenous tribe of Chihuahua. You wouldn't think of them as Mexican in any sense except the legal sense. They speak their own language, and they live much as they did 500 years ago. No electricity, no running water, their own customs, their own culture, their own dress, their own food. And these kids, every single one of them, had been so badly abused and were so difficult. I'm talking child prostitutes and hardcore child drug addicts who were 
had been sold by their families or abandoned by their families. Mexican culture and families a lot closer than ours. So if a Mexican child is left alone on the street, something has gone horribly, dreadfully, wickedly wrong. And the Tarahumara children, the indigenous children, were further removed because they weren't really like any of these other kids. They didn't even speak Spanish. A very stoic culture. Unbelievably stone-faced with no apparent emotions. That's just the way that culture is. It's the way they've learned to live and survive in northern Mexico. But that kid had come enough into Christian love and contact with these other children that they had taught him to, enough for him to know that his life situation wasn't normal. And though what was normal for children is that children were born into families with a mom and dad who loved them and cared for them. And he had just a few days before what happened next told someone in the camp that he was very sad because he had come to the realization that he'd never have a mom or dad or a family. And then one day, I wasn't even there, but I cried about it when I heard it. An American family from Colorado who had been visiting the orphanage for years doing work projects had never told the boy this because it was so unlikely that they would be able to pull it off, but they had been working and spending greatly so that they could adopt him. And one day, in the middle of his little humdrum existence, squeezed onto a few dusty acres on the outskirts of the city of Chihuahua, they came and told him, we are your mom and dad. Let's eat. Let's get your stuff. You're going home with us. What that boy then experienced is something that somewhat resembles the enormity of the love that God has for you. It's that alien. It's that otherworldly. It's that unheard of on earth. And what that does is it changes fundamentally who we are. That boy's identity changed in a moment. He became legally and forever a cherished and protected part of that family. He became heir to money that he didn't know or even imagine existed in the world. Everything was done for him, not because he earned it, but simply because of their choice and their love to act in his life in that way. He received and welcomed that love, and then he was family. God's love changes, first of all, who we are. Now, maybe that sounds so good, and you would ask me next, well, then why is my life so hard? See, I grew up on a kid. I grew up with a little book called something like Living Like a King's Kid. Anybody ever see that? It was big in the 70s, one of those books that all 12-year-olds had to read. And it really stressed this identity portion of what it means to be a Christian. But if you're very realistic and you've been through life, then you notice that people don't always treat you like a king's kid. They don't treat you too well. Life remains difficult. John addresses that next because he knows that's going to be a question in his readers' minds. Look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He says it twice in one sentence. The reason why the world does not know us is what? Did not know him. 
If you're mistreated, if you're not celebrated, if you're not welcomed as one of God's children, John says, that shouldn't be terribly surprising. They don't know the Father. They don't know Him. Somewhere we got this mistaken notion that at least in America, if we're Christians, we should have this privileged, beautiful, protected status. Can I meddle for just a second? This Christmas, we were treated to the ridiculous controversy that if a secular company that has never claimed to know or love Jesus made their Christmas cups the color red, we were being mistreated. I mean, seriously, what in the world? And somebody said that he was going to go tell the barista that his name was Merry Christmas to call force the poor hourly employee to say Merry Christmas across the store, because that'll teach them. (laughs) Where in the world did we ever get the idea that having and loving and enjoying God in this way would mean that we would be treated with special privilege anywhere on earth? It's not what Jesus said. Look what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Wait a second. We don't talk like this anymore. Woe is not a way to tell a horse to stop in this context. What does woe, W-O-E, mean? Trouble. Poor you. You are to be pitied. You are to be grieved over, Jesus says. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Wait a minute. I thought that's what we were trying to do. No. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to who? To the false prophets. It's people who don't know and say the truth that are received well. You know how popular this Gnostic thing was that your spirit remains pure, go do whatever you want with your body? Now, this is a religion we can all believe in. That's kind of exciting. I like that. Jesus says when everybody thinks you're the best, when everybody speaks well of you, that's a bad sign because that's how false prophets were treated before. He said it perhaps even more plainly in John 15, 18. Look, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Oh. See, the love of God changes who we are, and who we are changes the way we're treated in every sense. Because we are God's children, we can expect nothing but love from God. And His love will be laced with a Father's firm, loving, well-intentioned, ultimately fruitful discipline. It won't always feel good, but you will be loved, loved more than you can possibly understand. But if you're really God's child and you've made that transfer from your old life into the new life and the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you can expect that not everybody will throw a party to welcome you. They didn't welcome your Savior. His life on earth began in a manger because family would not take them in. It was one indignity after another. Last week I told you he went to his hometown and his first address to them ended in a riot that tried to murder him. What does that mean? We take great confidence in the love of God. If people reject us and people turn their back on us because we're following him, we're not troubled by that. It may hurt, but we don't despair about that. We know then that we're actually really following Him. And it not only changes who we are, the passage goes on to say it's God's love goes even beyond that. It changes also who we will be. Look in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's three times in two verses that He said it. 
It's like John can't get over it. Look how deep the Father's love is. Look at the kind of love the Father lavishes on us in order that we would be called His own children. And that's, why we, that's what we are. We are His children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What's that mean? We still don't know how deep this love is. Now, catch this. Nobody on earth knew Jesus better than John. But John is telling you, I know how much he loves me, and I'm also telling you this, that love is so deep, the lavishing of that love is so profound, I don't even know where it stops. I can't even begin to tell you all that it's going to do for us. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know this. When we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's a lot in that verse. I want you to look at it again and think about it carefully. What John is telling you is that Jesus not only came for you, he's also coming back. He didn't just give you himself to welcome you into God's family. He began what Paul calls a good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it until his return. He's not only a rescuer, he's a rescuer that also brings you into God's family, and that love continues, and his work continues and grows deeper and better until it is capped by this amazing fact. Jesus not only came once, he's also coming again to finish the good work he started. And when that happens, three things will be true. He will return, you will see him, and then, John says, we will be what? Like him. Wow. Doesn't that sound good? Let me ask it another way. Don't you ever get tired of being yourself? I don't mean that you want to be obliterated, but aren't don't you ever get tired of the way you kind of go through life? I do. I was tired of my way yesterday. We had a lot of stuff to do and some appointments to keep. And I got ready for El Nino cleaning out the gutters. Yeah, it took about five minutes because it's California. Nothing ever happens here, right? But we're trying to be ready. And all day long, through a good productive day, with my kid back from college and the other kid right where he's always been, right in the center of the home, just being awesome. <laughs> I mean, we're all together, everything's taken care of, and all day long, I was just kind of low-grade low crabby. And my family could tell. And they're asking politely, gently, to not irritate me further, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> and I just wasn't my normal zippity-doo-dah self. That's the default <laughs> setting, and it... Most people find it annoying. Pray for the people who work with me day in, day out. But yesterday, I went to bed thinking, why am I this way? Why couldn't I have been joyful, grateful, happy with all the good things that I enjoy in my life right now? That's just a very small example. There are many others, and there are things in your heart too. When Jesus comes back for you, you're not going to disappear. You will be yourself forever. But when you see him, you will be like him. 
For those of you who are grieving this Christmas because you've lost people you loved and every Christmas season is difficult because you miss those who have gone ahead of you to be with the Lord, understand the promise that John is making here. The ultimate depth of the love of God is this. It takes people to, so that we can be with Jesus and it finishes the good work that He started by making us like Jesus. And somehow you will be yourself, but without the sin and the stain and the curse of sin, without the dogged self-centeredness that hounds my every step and yours, in a moment, at that time, we are going to be like Jesus. That's how deep the love is. That's why Paul said elsewhere, no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't imagine how good this love is. Paul, in one of his letters, prayed that they would understand it. Here's my prayer for, you, prayer for you, that you would know how much God loves you, and you'll never get over it. That's why John is the love apostle, as some people have nicknamed him. When he first met Jesus, he was asking Jesus permission to call fire down from heaven to burn people up who didn't like Jesus. John would have been re- leading the Starbucks controversy back then in those early days, I think. He would have been gathering petitions and shaking his fist at the end before he, geez, John even went to heaven. John was so much more like Jesus, he speaks to other Christians like this. He calls them little children. He calls them beloved. Why? Because that's Jesus' attitude. We don't know what we will be. It's going to be unimaginably better than it is now when his work is completed. And I think back about that little Tarahumara boy, that little indigenous boy from northern Mexico who once didn't speak Spanish, much less English. I wonder how his eyes grew wide when he saw for the first time an upper-middle-class Colorado home. I wonder what happened when he walked into a walk-in closet for the first time. Because he went from some streets to a very poor barracks style living that counted the tortillas to make sure every child had at least one per meal. What would it have been like for that child to get on an airplane and for them to pull out a map for the first time and explain to him, we're here, but we're going to get on that big metal device over there. And three hours from now, we're going to be way over here. What a wonder it must have been for a child like that to get off the airplane and see that the scenery and the temperature was entirely different because he was in a very different place. And I can't begin to imagine what his experience has been as he's nearly a grown man now somewhere in Colorado, an American citizen and a beloved part of an American family. His life was fundamentally different because of who they made him. He could not begin to imagine all that would be in his life because of how much they loved him. And I'm telling you that to tell you the love of God is far greater than anything, any difference that little boy has experienced. And John says in closing this paragraph that all of this should also change how we behave. Verse 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as He is pure. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean earn your salvation. No, your hope is in Christ. John is saying to these people who have been saturated in this Gnostic idea that you're a pure spirit, go do whatever you want. He's saying, no, your relationship, your identity 
in the family of God, your ultimate destiny to be like your Savior, that should absolutely fundamentally make a difference in the way you act. The pastor of a big church on the East Coast was quoted this week as saying that he understood that people wanted a relationship, not religion, so he would never tell them how to behave. He's half right. Of course, we all want relationship, not religion. We want a living relationship, not with a creed or a set of rules, but with a living person whose name is Jesus. But that relationship should absolutely change the way we behave because the relationship is real to us and we love Him. Let me ask you, have you ever had a loving relationship in your life that didn't change the way you behaved? Does having a best friend change the way you act toward Him? What if he's your best friend, but you never take his calls? Just flat out ignore him. Maybe when he does call, you pick up for five seconds to swear at him a little bit and then hang up. Would that, uh, would that look anything like friendship? Does falling in love change your behavior? Oh, my goodness. My wife's name is Sharice. I held up bags of Reese's Pieces in gas stations and said, look, guys. Now, what? Reese. I know, that was their reaction exactly, right? <laughs> You're an idiot. Yeah, I get it, I know. That started over 25 years ago. Now, why did I go from trying to pretend to be cool to giddy? Because I was in love. Did have, those of you who have children, has having a relationship with children for the first time in life, did that change anything about your behavior? Getting married change your behavior? Say this, if you didn't change the way you acted after getting married, you weren't married for long. It's not rules. It's relationship. It's not behavior to literally make yourself pure and earn your own salvation. It's a loving response that stays away, that purifies itself and doesn't involve itself so easily and so willingly in the very sins that prompted the rescuer, the Savior, to come and die in the first place. It should absolutely change how we behave. Paul explained it like this to the Corinthians. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Understand what he's saying here. God has made great promises to us, and we are loved. So, let's stay clear of the things that soil our body and our spirit. Let's continue setting ourselves apart for God because we have a loving, reverent relationship with Him. He is our Father, and we love Him, and that's why we behave not because we need to earn it. That little Taromara boy, at no point I am quite confident knowing this Christian family did they say, now behave or it's back to the orphanage with you. You know how much we've loved you, you do what we say or you'll be back there so fast your head will spin. Never. Why did they call him to account? Why did they tell him how to act? Because he was their son, because he was loved. This is how our family works. We love you so much that we want you to behave in certain ways. That's the relationship that God wants to have with you. What am I trying to tell you? God loves, God's love changes everything. It changes your destiny. It changes your identity. And it should, today, change the way you behave. 
We've been placed in a world that is increasingly dark to give witness to that light. We have been given a knowledge of a God who loves us so deeply that there is nothing He will spare to have us back, and there is nothing He won't do to enjoy fellowship with us, including coming back for us. So let's enjoy that love and let's rest in it and let's tell the world that God's love absolutely changes everything. Let's pray. Christian, if you know Jesus, are you living in such a way that the love of God is real and difference-making to you? Are you resting in the identity He gave you? Knowing that you one day will be like Jesus, can you see yourself making progress? Can you see that you're more like Him this year than you were last? Very important, very practically, has your relationship with Jesus changed in a fundamental way? Not only what you know about yourself, who you are, but the way you live your day-to-day -day life? Or does it look a little more like Jesus loves me, so I'll do whatever I want? If God has comforted you in His love and maybe called you to account, pointed out some things to you where changes need to be made, where you need to be honest with Him, could you take a minute and talk to Him about that? And when I, I address the crowd as Christian, if you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, if you're coming to church maybe to try to earn it, do better, get it together, understand you'll never get it together well enough for Him. Jesus is a Savior because you need saving. Jesus is a Savior and a rescuer because there was nothing I could personally do to save or rescue myself. It's not a cooperative program. He is the rescuer. He is the Savior. He welcomes me into God's family. And then He changes from us from the inside out so that we learn day by day to live more and more like God's kids, which we are. If you're not absolutely certain of that, could I invite you simply to trust Jesus right now, to ask Him to save you from your sin? That's His name. That's His title. He is the Savior. Would you ask Him to rescue you and save you? He will. He's done it for countless millions, from every kind of religion and non-religion imaginable. But if you'll turn from your sin and turn to Him and say, Jesus, save me, He will. And my only request is that you'd let us know that you've done that today and you've asked Him to save you by filling out that card and letting us know that that's what He put in your heart. Father, may this church be increasingly recognized in heaven and on earth as people who are loved by you and who live out that love as John did by telling others about you and changing, Lord, with all kinds of stumbles and struggles as the original disciples had, changing day by day to be more and more like you until you finish the good work you've already begun. Whichever ditch people are tempted to, would you draw them back to the path of truth to know that they are loved, that it wouldn't be mundane or ordinary, that they would know that they are loved that much, and also, God, that you would convince the person who is least likely to believe it, who feels most unworthy, that you love them, you love him, you love her in just that way, enough so that you could call them son or daughter. We love you and we thank you and we give you this offering so that other people may know you. Amen.